Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. In dozens of deep stories over the years, the writer John Mualem has explored an almost unimaginably wide terrain. Journalists often talk about what they, quote, cover, but defining that topic for Mualem is more or less impossible. The relationship between individual people, their cultures, and this excessively large planet, trying to be a decent person, the alternately mind-boggling and mind-expanding reality that there are just so many ways to be a person here on Earth, and there have been for thousands of generations. Those themes probably don't even map Muellum's range, but those are the things we're planning to talk about this morning. Pour an extra cup of coffee. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. John Muellum is the author of multiple books, a fixture of the live event series pop-up magazine, and a preposterously good feature writer for the New York Times Magazine, among other places. He's got a new collection of essays out, Serious Face, that allows us to explore his work here today. John's range is vast, but in the book's introduction, he does postulate an underlying structure to his body of work with a question he realized he's been pursuing. Why are we not better than we are? As people, as a species, as you there, a pair of ears attached to a body filled with blood and muscle, wrapped around a mind considering your place in the cosmos. Thanks for helping us all be a little better, John Mualem, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Alexis. What a cool introduction. I appreciate it. So fun to talk with you. Um, so the way this show is going to go is, John, you and I, we're going to kind of talk our way into several essays, and then you're going to read the heart of the, the theme. And we're going to start with an essay about a topic that I know really deeply affected a lot of our listeners, Paradise, the Campfire, and this new reality here in California and across the world. Can you first start, John? Um, just tell me a little bit about the essay's pretty striking opening. Yeah, so this was a piece, um, you know, I'd, I'd been asked to go down to to Paradise um, just a couple days after the, the fire in, in 2018. And, um, you know, to be perfectly honest, I was incredibly intimidated and nervous. Um, I felt some, you know, pretty outsized responsibility when there was a calamity of that scale, mm -hmm. that it was going to be really important to capture something worthwhile. You know, there was a lot of good reporting coming out about what had gone wrong in paradise, why so many people had died, why the evacuation had not proceeded the way it should have. Um, there was a lot of, you know, good, smart people talking about what it meant in terms of, of the future of our climate. And in the end, I felt, um, you know, really privileged and fortunate that I'd found uh, a woman um, named Tamara, who had uh, fled the the town, uh, come down off the ridge during the day of the fire in a very chaotic, dangerous, um, you know, completely ad hoc way, like most people. 
But she had documented everything on her phone. She had filmed videos uh, almost constantly for the hours that it took her to get out of town. And it just suddenly hit me that, okay, this is something, this is something I can do that feels um, you know, important uh, to, to just kind of give a sense in a very intimate, minute-by-minute way of what happened to one person on that day. And as I started down that process um, of really just trying to reconstruct her evacuation, um, just realizing that in some ways the the feeling that she had, <laughs> the feeling of being trapped and the feeling of being completely unequipped for the scale of a disaster that was unfolding in front of her um, was pretty resonant with with me, even as someone who had never been in a wildfire, just as me as like an attentive person to what's happening on planet Earth right now, that, that somehow that's also kind of the feeling of climate change for a lot of us, I think. Yeah, I think one of your lines in that story is, you know, she wasn't just stuck in the line trying to get off uh, the ridge. She was stuck in the 21st century, right? Like she just, There's no way, there was no way out. Yeah. And, yeah. And yet what makes this story, or one of the things that makes this story so stirring, is that she does kind of get out with the help of a couple other people. Yeah, that was that was one thing that I heard from a lot of people in Paradise. And, you know, I've written about other disasters, too. You know, my last book was about an earthquake in Alaska in the 60s. And one thing that, that just always spills out of all of these stories everywhere you look is that people do have this instinct to help one another in these situations, you know. And um, a lot of times we miss that because we have this idea, we've bought into this myth um, that people are become these helpless, panicked, uh, sometimes violent or um, you know, conflict-hungry uh, people when their lives are on the line. But in so many small ways, um, and, and Tamara's story was a perfect example of it, you see people reaching out and just trying to connect with each other and help each other. So at, at one point, you know, she had she had wound up in an incredibly precarious situation uh, in her car, and and her car actually began to to burn some some uh, like you know uh, leaf litter in in her windshield uh, lit, and 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 her uh, car caught on fire, and there was a window washer named Larry who was uh, just in the same traffic jam as Tamara, a couple cars away. And just very calmly, uh, the way she described it, very calmly beckoned him over, you know, with his arm and just said, get in. And she hauled, uh, you know, her and her two dogs, leaving everything else that she had packed into her car behind. And then that was it for the rest of the day. She was with Larry. Um, and it was just it was so great to to be able to reconstruct that story, talking to the two of them, because you realize just as as Tamara was feeling um, really incapable of of managing her own safety uh, for all the hours that preceded that moment. Larry was also sort of cursing himself for winding up in that situation to begin with and was looking for some reason why he was there. And when the two of them came together, you know, he described it as he had never, he'd gone to um, Catholic school and it had never quite, uh, the, you know, all the religion had never quite stuck, but he did believe that there was something kind of magical and holy that happened when two people could connect and help each other. And that was what made him feel like, you know, suddenly he was in the right place instead of, uh, you know, a, a big dummy for, for driving back up into paradise when it was on fire. Well, and also it gave him something he needed, someone to take care of, some a, a way of like channeling the that energy and that animal fear that he too was also feeling. Um, you know, you mentioned at the at the outset that there were a lot of people writing about the sort of failures of planning or at least the failures of execution of the plans. And one of the really striking anecdotes you tell is about the emergency planner for the town of Paradise who says, you know, whenever he goes to schools, right, he is always encounters some smart aleck kid who says, you know, keeps asking him, you know, well, aren't, isn't this fire going to get us? Couldn't the fire always be worse? 
And the quote you have is, do you tell a community if this particular scenario hits, a bunch of you are going to die? Is that appropriate? I don't know the answer. How did you end up feeling? What do we tell ourselves in some of these scenarios where we do know that because of the derangement of the climate, we might be in danger if certain a certain confluence of factors happen? Yeah. I mean, I'd just like to say first, I mean, I give this this man a tremendous amount of credit for just his really admirable directness about the situation. His name is Jim Brochiers. He was kind of a career firefighter in paradise and became the, the town's emergency manager. And yeah, I mean, at one point he, he showed me his big thick binder of fire evacuation plans for the town and showed me how precise everything was mapped out and, you know, all the, the meticulousness they had put into planning for a wildfire just like this. Well, actually not just like this, you know, smaller than this, but still bigger than they imagined was possible. And then he just clapped the, the binder shut and he said, you know, nine times out of ten, that's still going to work. And this was, the, this was the tenth time. And I think you're right. I think that is... Um, you know, I think that captures something about our predicament right now that really, I mean, I think we've seen this in a lot of ways over the last few years. Um, and, you know, climate is just one of them, but, but way more seems to be possible on earth right now than we can really imagine. Right. And so, uh, somehow we've got to have our imaginations catch up to reality because it keeps outstripping us. And so here you had a community that, that because of past experience had thought, you know, we really got to get our act together and, and plan for a, a disaster like this. And then they did, and it still wasn't enough. And I don't really know where that leaves us, because I think in some sense, that's the, that's the nature of risk, right? Like, you, there's always going to be the time that is beyond the bounds of what you prepared for. And it doesn't mean you don't prepare. But I think we can, we definitely have to kind of up our game at this point. Um, and I think that goes for a lot of things. I mean, we could say the same thing about the pandemic, right? It, it caught us in the same way. Um, so I don't know what to do with that feeling. Like if I'm being completely honest, like it, it terrifies me in some sense. And then I also think, well, we got to this point, right? Like we, we, we're managing to, to mostly function in a society that's, you know, far more complicated than anything we could have dreamed of when we were sitting around, uh, painting, you know, stags and on cave walls. Right. And, uh, maybe we just need to accelerate our, our kind of imaginative progress uh, a little bit to catch up with the reality we've, we've built for ourselves. Yeah. The, uh, Planners for nuclear apocalypse, uh, some scholars later on, you know, referred to their documents about sort of how the post office would work after nuclear Armageddon as sort of fantasy documents and that they were, you know, these these reports that were produced to sort of stave off the feeling that um, the world would end. Uh, which it would have. Right, right. Well, there, not yeah, keep there, running, you know? There's the logistical piece of that planning and then there's the emotional piece of that yes, planning, that's right, which is yeah, sometimes exactly. it's just nice to be able to, in, in times of calm, to be able to look at something and say, okay, that, that's how it'll all work yeah, out. Yeah, we'll know? have a post office after every large town in America has been nuked. Um, let's have you read um, this passage. Um, and I think we have it marked for you, page 179. Yeah, this is the end of the piece, and um, you know I've just I've just kind of finished the story of of Larry and and Tamara um, leaving Paradise, you know, after just like an unthinkable saga and and many close calls, um, and this is just sort of how I I had to I felt at the end I had to step back and and kind of give you a sense of the scale of what had happened. How did it end? With smoke, with colossal shapes of smoke gurgling out of Paradise behind Larry and Tamara as they glided downhill and with a stoic figure somewhere inside the smoke, single-mindedly grinding through neighborhoods in his bulldozer, music blaring, chasing after flames as they stampeded uphill, but mostly failing to get ahead of them, as he and every other firefighter labored to keep fire away from the structures that seemed, in the end, determined to burn. The houses had revealed themselves. 
They were just another crop of tightly clustered, dried-out dead trees, a forest that had grown, been felled and milled, then rearranged sideways and hammered together by clever human beings who, over time, came to forget the volatile ecosystem that spawned that material and still surrounded it now. Some of that wood most likely lived a hundred years or more and had been lumber for almost as long, a storehouse of energy that was now bursting open, joining with the burning forests around the ridge into a single furious outpouring of smoke. Ominous because it was dark and high enough to challenge the sun, but also because it was largely composed of carbon, an estimated 3.6 million metric tons of greenhouse gases that, as seems to happen at least once every fire season lately, was more than enough to obliterate the progress made by all of California's climate change policies in a typical year. How did it end? With smoke. With smoke that signaled the world Tamara had known at the beginning of the day was gone, and that surely signaled something just as grave for the rest of us. Within hours, and for nearly two weeks after that, smoke would swamp the lucid blue sky over the valley where Tamara was now heading, where for weeks she would be afraid to be left alone, and for months refused to drive, terrified by the sensation of slowing down in traffic even momentarily, where she found herself repeatedly checking the sky to make sure it wasn't black, where she kept showering but swore she still smelled the smoke on her skin. And before long, that smoke had floated all the way to the coast, where it forced the city of San Francisco to close its schools. How did it end? It hasn't. It won't. That was John Moo Allen. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and I'm talking with writer John Mualem about his new book of essays, Serious Face. Before the break, you just heard John Mualem read from his story, We Have Fire Everywhere, about Paradise, the town of Paradise, during the campfire. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us about a moment when your relationship with nature or this, this planet shifted. Give us a call. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Maybe it was that day when the sky went dark here in the Bay Area. You can get in touch. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. You can email your questions for John Mualm or to tell us about how your relationship with nature has shifted or a moment when it did at forum 
at kqed.org. Uh, John, we're going to talk about your essay, Why These Instead of Others Now? And this is one where you're kind of a main character in it. And set it up for us. You're going on this kayaking slash camping trip in Alaska, and then something goes wrong. Yeah, this was back in 2002. So this was a, a case where, you know, something pretty astonishing happened, and it, it took me 18 years or so to write about it. Um, but yeah, I'd been in, it was shortly after I uh, was done with college. My father had actually just died somewhat unexpectedly, and a friend of mine who was leading kayaking trips up in Glacier Bay invited uh, me and another friend, uh, Dave, uh, the friend up there, his name was John also, confusingly, so I'll just flag that now. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, John had invited the two of us up to take a kayaking trip. Uh, we were obviously very excited, had never done anything like that. Uh, day two of the trip uh, started torrentially raining on us. Uh, we, were, we were beached. Uh, storm passed. We decided to take a walk around out of kind of boredom and some sense of adventure. And uh, there's no, you know, other way to put it. Just uh, a very freakishly a giant tree uh, snapped and fell over, uh, landing on my friend John um, and really um, severely injuring him. And the rest of the piece really becomes a story about, um, you know, how we kind of bumbled our way out of that situation um, and got John um, to to help and to safety, uh, essentially saving his life, even though it really never occurred to us at the time. I don't think we had the presence of mind to. Um, to have a concrete thought about what might have happened if if we hadn't succeeded, um, but again, you know, writing it all these years later, it was it was it was pretty astonishing and very humbling to actually get to talk to those those two guys who are still very close friends of mine and really process what had happened in a way that I don't think we would have been capable of, you know, as twenty two year old dudes. Yeah, right. I mean, one of the things that's so remarkable about this essay too, and as you detail, I mean, it became part of like you know, it was on a TV reality TV show and all these things. It was just that there was a series of really improbable things that happened, beginning with the tree, um, but also all the things that then allowed you to save your friend, a ship passing at just the right moment, happening upon, you know, just it just everything had to go first just wrong and then just right in order for you to get him out of there. Yeah, I think that's exactly the right way to, to characterize it. I mean, really, the, the, the biggest sort of hinge point in that story is, is you know, we had a radio, uh, which we first had to go run a couple miles and, and get. Uh, but the radio was only a line-of-sight radio, so you're really not going to get in touch with anyone that you can't see. And we hadn't seen a single person since the very beginning of, of the trip. And yet, because of the same severe weather, there happened to be a Coast Guard cutter that had come into this um, you know, somewhat protected area of Glacier Bay um, to avoid that weather and, and literally was just passing through the range of the radio at the moment that um, that we called. So as it was explained to me, you know, a couple of seconds difference in either direction, if they had been going a little bit faster or a little bit slower, if we had taken a little bit extra time getting to the radio, um, we would have just, you know, lost, been lost forever. It would, uh, we would not have aligned in that way. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, one of my favorite books, rereading this uh, essay, uh, one of my favorite books is called The Mezzanine by Nicholson Baker. I don't know if you're mm, familiar mm-hmm. with but this this guy basically obsesses about why one of his shoelaces broke but not the other. <laughs> and I mean, it sounds totally absurd, but that's kind of the same question that you're asking here. Like, what is chance? Like, what is luck? And 
it's kind of all of existence is both of those things, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's interesting because I was, you know, one of the coolest things about, you know, having a book like this out is you get to talk to all really smart people who are, have really interesting thoughts about what you're doing. And, and I find that I've, as I've talked about the book in the last week or two, like I can pick up their insights and then absorb, you know, pretend that they're mine. But, you know, someone had pointed out to me that I think this is a, a really good example of, of kind of the kinds of stories I love writing without even um, being able to conceive of them this way in, until now. But that, that there is a way to tell this story um, like a lot of stories in the book where it seems inevitable. You know, it seems like because we have these storytelling brains that want to organize information um, in, in really crisp ways, um, you know, it's a, it's a classic adventure story. You know, something unexpected happens and then, um, you know, through, uh, you know, a, a perseverance and pluck, you know, you get out of the situation. And I think what a lot of what I was doing in this story and in a lot of these stories was was tearing that very simple, um, straightforward story apart and really looking at each piece of it um, and then combining, you know, recombining them in a way that felt more true, but also so much more fragile and um, mm. and so much more up for disruption, you know, that it, it, it to just realize it, each thing that happens could have happened in a million different ways. And, and in this story, more than the others in the book, you know, the stakes are are so much higher. Um, and it really but it really brings that arbitrariness that you're talking about into relief, I think. Well, and, you know, just to set up the reading you're going to do here, you know, your father had just died back then, as you were saying. And so people would sometimes say, you know, your dad was uh, watching over you or your mother said that, I guess. Your father must have been looking over you uh, and you didn't see it that way. Um, so you can go ahead. Yeah. I mean, one other thing I should just set up is that I spent the first the first part of the trip just absolutely, you know, terrified of grizzly bears. I just was not <laughs> psychologically equipped to um, to be in grizzly bear country, I guess. And and so that was my my big fear. So the tree kind of caught me caught me off guard, which was an irony that was not not lost on me. Um, anyway, yeah, I resented all the supernatural thinking. If it comforted other people, fine. But I'd somehow known right away that I didn't need a reason for the accident. It was senseless but straightforward, as unequivocal a fact as my father's death had been. A tree fell in the woods. It might not have, but it did. John could have died, but he didn't. Other possibilities spiraled infinitely outward from there, though apparently I wasn't too interested in contemplating them. As strange as it sounds, it was years before I realized that the tree could have hit me, and only after a friend pointed this out as I told the story around a fire one night. And it was only a few weeks ago, while on the phone with John, that it occurred to me that the tree could have hit all three of us. We were standing in a single file line, after all, waiting to cross the creek, and that we all might have wound up clobbered and scattered in that river, dying slowly and watching each other die. It's also probably true that I helped preclude these possibilities by being so feverishly paranoid about bears, wheeling around at the sound of the snapping roots. That's what allowed me to see the tree coming, just barely, and scream that infinitesimal heads up for Dave. And so the real meaning of the accident, if I felt compelled to find one, might be that it had validated my most exaggerated fears. But instead, it somehow helped cleanse me of them. There was comfort for me in accepting the arbitrariness of what happened, in regarding it as a spasm of random damage in time and space that, just as randomly, a small number of human beings got the opportunity to repair. We were more capable than I had understood. We were also far more helpless." Just beautiful, beautiful. I uh, wanted to get to uh, a call quickly here. Greg in Woodside. Good morning. I just want to say, you know, <clears throat> yeah, nature is not to be played with. <laughs> you know how they always say, you know, don't turn your back to the ocean and all that. And I kind of thought, 
you know, that means like if you're waiting or whatever. And, you know, I've spent years on the beach. And I every weekend go to Kelly Beach and go for a nice long run and, you know, bring my friend's dog and, you know, never have any problems. Beautiful day. We'd gotten a lot of rain. <clears throat> and so there was a ton of water coming down off the cliff. And so there was a really nice waterfall. And I was like, wow, that's really pretty. I've never seen it before. And so I'm running along and then I see this, you know, w- little wave coming up and I didn't want to get my tennis shoes wet. So I turn and start going up the beach, which, you know, there's like 30 feet of sand. So, you know, no problem getting Yeah, you're not worried. Sand. You're just like thinking about your socks getting <laughs> no. moist. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and next thing I know, this rogue wave comes in. It just grabs me and the dog. I'm going head over tails trying to figure out what is going on. And then I come up, you know, <clears throat> and the top of the wave, and I could see that beautiful waterfall full of rock. That I'm just about to hit, <laughs> and then slam, <laughs> no. slams me right into the cliff. And um, and then it just starts to just pull me and the dog, like, out to the ocean. So I just grabbed onto the rocks like concrete and uh, finally went out and sitting <laughs> there like, what happened? And this lady that was on top of the cliff was like screaming, like, "Oh my God, are you okay? Are you okay?" And uh, you know, I got out of there. I had a little concussion, and I had to run three miles back to the car, soaking wet. And people were looking at me like, "What?" And, and you know, it was just a rogue wave, and like it didn't happen anywhere else on the beach. It was just at the wrong place at the wrong time, and just shockingly that you know it could happen that fast. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Did it change the way that you approach the the ocean or nature or your life? Like, how did what happened? Well, Betty doesn't go in the water anymore. <laughs> and um, your you dog know, is I, representation I, of your inner soul. Um, <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, I I spend so much time on the water and around the water. Um, so yeah, it definitely makes me uh, much more cautious. But um, I still love the water. Wow! Wow! That's um, yeah, there's a quote in that in that kayaking piece that um, I've always thought because you know the truth is is like so now I've heard that story. It's not like I can walk around you know every time I'm on a beach now that I've absorbed that information. You know, being I mean we just can't function that way, right? I think that's some of what's been the problem with the pandemic is like we just we only have so much sort of headspace around for like catastrophic risks, you know. Um, but and yet you know I, it just sometimes happens. But there's a, there's a quote in that kayaking piece from a poet um, who I was really infatuated with at the time that we took that trip, which you're, what you're saying reminds me of. His name is Hayden Caruth, and he wrote that the wilderness begins at the edge of my body at the edge of my consciousness and extends to the edge of the universe and it is filled with menace and i just i just kind of love that quote because you know i thought that was just australia it's uh, you know it's like objectively objectively true and yet you know it's it's just you almost have to laugh at the quote because it's just so dire you know you can't you can't possibly that can't possibly be your worldview and and be a functioning human being um one listener daniel writes i heard a fire expert say recently that fires in 2022 are going to have to be looked at the same as hurricanes, tornadoes, and earthquakes, or I might add rogue waves, impossible to predict, and that fires are just going to be like every other natural disaster. They will happen and man will not be able to control them. Yeah, that was that was an idea that really came up when I was when I was doing the Paradise, because I think it wasn't just the campfire. You know, there there'd been the series of fires leading up to it too, where where there really was a sense among you know, I think the general public for sure, but also among, you know, people who work at fire, you know, who, who are fire, firefighters or fire, you know, landscape managers, just really starting to realize, you know, we've, we've kind of tricked ourselves into thinking that this is the natural disaster that we can fight. 
you know that we we it's almost medieval you know like we're we have we're like knights and we go out there and we surround the flanks of this beast and you know this dragon and we and we try to extinguish it and that really maybe you know i mean not that we're going to give up fighting fires but we we maybe need to incorporate a little more emphasis on on ways to shelter in place or ways to evacuate and and think of these things as as the kind of the colossal you know unbeatable animals that that they're becoming we're talking with writer John Mualam about his new book of essays, Serious Face, and we'd love to hear from you. You can tell us about a moment when your relationship with nature, this planet, our climate-deranged Earth, shifted. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum, or you can email your questions or uh, stories to forum at kqed.org. John, I want to talk about your essay, This Is My Serious Face. Um, the setup here is some friends go to, a, go to a bar in Granada, Spain. They see this photo on the wall. They send it to you. And what do you think? Um, I was creeped out. <laughs> uh, it was a photo of a matador, a black and white photo of a matador that was hanging on the wall. And when they sent it to me, they didn't, they didn't write anything. They just sent me, they just emailed me a photo. And there was no words with it, but I knew exactly why. It was because this matador looked exactly like me. Um, and, uh, you know, for several years, I just kind of had this this photo saved on my phone, and I would show it to people, and we'd all laugh. Um, <laughs> and it, it took me a while. I don't know why, but in retrospect, but it took me a while to be like, oh, I wonder who this actually is, you know? And then seconds later, I you know, on Google, I, I could find out. And um, his name was Manolete. He was known as sort of the most, uh, the best and most famous bullfighter of his day in the, in the 40s. Um, and I became a little, a little obsessed with him, trying to figure out, you know, what it was, uh, why he had kind of hurtled through time to uh, reach me here, and what what his life was trying to was trying to tell me. Well, and what was he known for aside from being a bullfighter? Well, that's the kicker, Alexis. <laughs> he was known for being super ugly. <laughs> he was just, it was just uh, hard, you know. It was, it was almost hard to believe. Like I ordered this um, little tiny obscure biography of him, you know, from way down the search results on Amazon. Um, and when I got it, I, you know, was so excited to learn anything about this man. And I, I ripped open the package and I stretched open the the book and the first sentence that I read, it said, uh, he has a face that's as dreary as a third class funeral on a rainy day. And uh, it just became so clear within seconds of, of diving into this book, how frequently and how um, creatively, honestly, people uh, <laughs> just uh, relentlessly commented on his looks, how, how sad and depressed he looked, um, you know, how big his nose was, just taking all kinds of gratuitous cheap shots about this, this poor guy's face. I mean, it's, it, it, this is a fascinating story because it's almost like you know, the the horror movie of Teenage Dumb. You know, you get to hear what everybody says about you, but in the meanest possible way, right? So what is this story ultimately about for you? I mean, it's not just about Manolete and his life and finding this connection. I mean, it's sort of about body positivity or or, or like coming to understand yourself. How, how do you see yeah, it? Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, I, I will say this is another case where I was very glad that I, I got to write about this and process it all, you know, in my 30s, as opposed to, you know, if I had found this guy when I was, you know, 16 or something, I probably would have been devastated and not left my room. And, but, you know, <laughs> at, at that point in my life, I just I just found it kind of amusing and hilarious and wanted to, you know, write about it and tell everyone about it. But yeah, I mean, it, the interesting thing to me about Manolete was, 
he really did seem to be as melancholy as his face made him look, and and he was very conflicted about whether he should be, a, a, you know, fighting bulls, not for any you know kind of modern you know enlightened ethical reasons, but just because it seemed he was he was sort of felt abused by the crowds, and you know he was sort of at the height of his powers and was not enjoying himself, and was going to step away when he was sort of roped back into the into fighting more bulls by a rival, a kind of manufactured manufactured rivalry by this um, loudmouth younger bullfighter. Um, and in that, you know, I, that was something that I felt like I really identified with. You know, it, it would probably take too long to explain it all, but um, the short version is that I've often, you know, I have a lot of kind of sinus and headache problems resulting from the, the, the crooked structure of my face, and I've, I've just really never gotten it together enough to, to deal with them all or, or take any doctor's recommendations seriously. And, um, you know, so uh, while it does sound absurd to compare um, going into a, a bull ring and, and fighting a, a bull with having a headache, um, the, the underlying emotion was sort of the same in, in my eyes, which was, you know, what are you supposed to do when you seem um, built for built a certain way, but that but that way is 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 causing you some suffering <laughs> and some mm-hmm. ambivalence. You know, do you soldier on and and do the thing um, that that you seem destined to do, or or do you rear up and and kind of change your own fate? Nice. Um, let's uh, get to that reading on this one, kind of the payoff of that. Story. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This is at the very end of the piece um, when I've I've gone on for a couple glorious pages about um, si- the science of sinuses, uh, which uh, I, I found more interesting than maybe they sound. But um, please stick stick with them if you get to the book. Uh, then I say, uh, surely all of us at certain moments in our lives have felt ourselves in conflict with some deeper and more essential self addled by insecurity or shame about who we are, or exhausted by our restless attempts to change it. And we all know that it takes courage to instead make peace with who you really are. Except, of course, if who you really are is a prisoner of inertia, or fear, or self-destructiveness, or apathy, or depression. In which case, we all know that making peace with that self would just be giving up, and that the courageous thing to do would be to fight against your essential self, to transform yourself into someone stronger. And as you say, the problem is it's pretty hard to know when, when you're in the former situation or the latter. We're talking with writer John Muellam about his new book of essays, Serious Face. And you can give us a call. Tell us about a moment when your relationship with nature shifted. Number is 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and we are talking with writer John Wellam about his new book of essays, Serious Face. John, I want to talk to you about um, this essay you have on another kind of human, Neanderthals. But first, we need to settle something. Is it Neanderthal or Neanderthal? I feel like there's some, some current debate here. Yeah, I mean, it is Neanderthal, right? That would, be the, that would be the correct pronunciation. And yet, for the life of me, I just, you know, every time I say it, I have to force myself <laughs> to say it that way. It's just one of those things that I think we've we've just all, you know, decided we're going to say it any way we want. And, uh, well, and I, you know, going. it's kind of, the, even that in and of itself is such a perfect representation of what the story is about, which is basically that Neanderthals are people too, and they're very misunderstood. Yeah, exactly. This was a this was a piece that I that I did because I just started noticing all of these um, you know scientific papers where they were really revising the the kind of you know literally the textbook understanding of Neanderthals and and away from thinking of them as these oafish brutes and and more realizing that they had a lot of more in common with with our ancestor you know the modern early humans uh, as they're as they're called or early modern humans. Um, that that the two the two of us were were living you know side by side in really much the same way and often intermingling and it was only you know a, a hundred or so years of of you know frankly racist and ignorant um, you know science quote unquote that had it for its own reasons had felt um, you know compelled to cast them as this this lesser than uh, species that that we outcompeted and 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 therefore exalting us as the victors of this kind of evolutionary warfare. Mm. You know, I mean, one of the things that's so beautiful and interesting about this story is the contrast between, you know, the awe of deep time, you know, where you've got, I think you described 2,000 generations or some, maybe even more of Neanderthals like living in this particular cave or, or coming, being through this area in Gibraltar. And at the same time, you've also got, you're, as you're reporting this story, Brexit is happening, which was sort of this, at least for those of us here in the United States, this kind of foreshock of Trumpism. Can you talk about what it was like to sort of, you know, be going back and forth between deep time of 2000 generations and this incredibly immediate thing that began the, the new cycle we're still in, really? Yeah, I mean, it was it was wild. I mean, that's, you know, I just feel like that's that's the kind of that's the way I love for my mind to bend, you know, is to try to hold those things in parallel because, and I'm going to be completely honest, like I did not, I didn't even realize I was going to be going to Gibraltar um, during the, the Brexit vote. You know, it just, I mean, I realized eventually, but when, not when I made the plans. And so, and, and I also, as I described in the piece, I was really pretty ignorant about Gibraltar. I did not understand the degree to which, you know, the, the predicament that Gibraltar was in because of Brexit. It's just this little nub of England that's hanging off the, the edge of Spain. And uh, they were, and it has this fraught relationship with, with Spain. Um, and so they were worried that if, if Brexit passed as a kind of retribution, Spain would suddenly close the border and uh, all these people who are commuting to Gibraltar for work would be stuck. And there'd been some precedents for this before, this kind of spiteful back and forth. And uh, so it was a real crisis. You know, I, I described it in the pieces when I showed up in Gibraltar, feeling like everyone was like waiting around, looking up at the sky, waiting to see whether a meteor was going to hit. Um, and that, that was all, you know, brand new to me when I was on the ground there. And it, and it really, you know, I, I, to be perfectly honest, like it seemed like it had nothing to do with what I was reporting on. It wasn't until I got back and mm. had actually written a draft of the story and shown it to my editor at the Times Magazine. And we started talking about um, Brexit that I realized the way that all these themes were threaded together. And just in the terms of this kind of tribalism or this 
this uh, you know fixation we have on on dividing uh, the the world between uses and thems, and 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 the fact that the way we characterize them is really just a a backdoor way to characterize us as as better or the opposite, and that was completely at the heart of of Brexit. Right, is that there needed to be some lines drawn in people's minds, um, people who were you know uh, leave, you know that they they needed to. To, to say, you know, we are this and we are not that. And that's, that's what's been coloring and, and polluting the science of, of Neanderthals for, for more than a century. And you kind of offer this alternative model um, of what it could be like to consider human variety and experience or just all the ways that humans can be. And that's what these twin brothers who are basically responsible for many or most of the recreations of Neanderthals that are uh, seen, you know, around the world. And can you set up who these guys are? Because our reading is from them and and they're just hilarious in this story. Yeah. Well, so this was a this was a case where um, I just uh, so they're, they're called Kenneth and Kenneth. I, I kept hearing about Kenneth and Kenneth because anytime you talk to a, a scientist who's dealing with Neanderthals or, you know, a museum, if, if they're going to talk about these kind of sculptural recreations of, you know, lifelike, you know, renderings of Neanderthals, they're always made by Kenneth and Kenneth. And uh, I had just assumed Kenneth and Kenneth was some kind of, you know, like um, IDEO or, you know, some kind of big, big <laughs> A firm, law firm you know? focusing right. on yes. the art of Neanderthals. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. And, um, you know, it wasn't until I'd had a few conversations that I, I learned that they were actually just uh, twin brothers. Um, and uh, they live in, in the Netherlands. And they've kind of cornered the market through sheer um, obsess- uh, obsessiveness. I mean, this has really been their passion since they were little boys was to, to draw and sculpt Neanderthals. Um, and the thing that, um, you know, I just knew, well, okay, I've got to, I've got to see these guys, I've got to meet these guys, you know, I, I knew nothing about them really. Um, but I knew that I had to meet them and I, I was just determined one way or another to wedge them into my story somehow, but it turned out that they, they really did, um, have some insight, you know, almost in spite of themselves, you know, somewhere in the swirl of their enthusiasm and, and the, the completely chaotic way in which they talked over themselves to me, explaining what they loved about the human body, um, that they had some insights that scientists didn't have about what it would be like to really imagine um, both Neanderthals as individuals, but also to just take in the full sweep of what human, you know, human forms can look like and how, how narrow-minded we can be about some of these things. Again, it gets back to this idea of, of just sort of being incapable of, of imagining you know, the fullness of, of what reality can be, in, in this case, um, just what, what people might have looked like. And in particular, their hair, right? So let's um, let's just get a, a little taste of these two. And I just love it as a celebration of humanity of all kinds around the world. Yeah, they they were they were showing. I was in their workshop, and they were they were showing me picture after picture of of um, people's hairstyles and and raving about how you know every what did Neanderthals do with their hair? You know, everyone does something with their hair. You know, why don't we, we have to take this seriously and and think about it? Um, This uncorked a frantic seminar on known global hairstyles of the last several thousand years. They began pulling up photos on Audrey's laptop. Dozens of them from anthropological archives or stills from old ethnographic films. These were some of the same photos that they had shown Finlayson, who's the museum director in Gibraltar. The brothers had pored over them for years, but still gasped or bellowed now as each new improbable human form appeared on the screen. The pictures showed a panorama of divergent body types and grooming. Spiky eyebrows, astonishingly asymmetrical breasts, a towering aboriginal man with the chiseled torso of an American underwear model but two twigs for legs, a Khoisan woman with an extremely convex rear end. People would never let us make buttocks like this, Alphonse said regretfully. 
To a typical white European, it would probably look exaggerated and unreal. But all this variation, it's beautiful, shouted Audrey, refusing to look away from the screen. He had to look. These were reaches of reality that people's minds didn't travel to on their own. If you live in the West, you'd never imagine, he went on. The brother's delight seemed to come from feeling all these superficial differences quiver against a profound, self-evident sameness. Finally, Audrey turned to me and said, very seriously, these are all homo sapiens. They showed me more photos. It's real, it's real, it's real, Alphonse kept shouting. Audrey said, unimaginable, unimaginable, unimaginable. It only registered later. I had spent the day with identical twins who since childhood have been stupefied by how different human beings can be. That was John Allen reading from his new book of essays, Serious Face. And I want to bring in Steve from Mountain View to share a story of when his relationship with this uh, globe we live on, with nature, shifted. Hi, Steve. Hi, how are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Go ahead. Well, um, quickly, because we're pretty close to the end. I'm a 65-year-old backpacker, been backpacking for 50 years in Sierras. And about, I don't know, eight years ago, I was on a solo trip for five days and was above a tree line at a lake by myself. And I don't like sleeping in tents. It's not, no reason for a tent. I don't put it up. But I, <laughs> luckily this night, put my pad and my bag on top of the tent, went to bed. And um, <laughs> then things started to get wild. Um, basically, the wind started whipping. Um, I was, I set my tent up, uh, luckily put um, rocks on it and crawled in for one heck of a night. Um, it tried to lift the tent off the ground. It smashed it flat on my face. It scared me so much that I was talking to someone, realized after a minute or so that I was talking to myself, I was the only other person there, right? Mm. <laughs> like an out-of-body experience. Um, it didn't so much, and I found out what it was. Later, I talked to a guy from NOAA, and he looked it up. He said, yeah, you were the lucky soul who was right underneath a thundercloud collapsing at night. Um, if we'd gone three, three miles one way or the other, I would have not had a breeze. Um, anyway, it, uh, it didn't really change it so much as it just amplified. Um, basically I, you know, I'm not fearful when I go out in the wild, but I'm respectful. And this was just a real big example of how infinitesimally small we are. Um, but I love it. I still love it. Didn't make me scared. Made me scared as heck that night. At the time, um, yeah. At the time, yeah. I, I really thought I was going to get blown off the mountain. <laughs> oh man, Steve! Thank you so much for uh, sharing that story with us. And one thunderclap when you're really close to it, particularly in the mountains, is enough to just, at least for me, send terror to the very center of my heart. Absolutely. It is so scary in a way that's actually um, hard to imagine if you haven't experienced it. Um, I want to just get to a couple of comments, and then we're going to talk about the essay, At the Precise Center of a Dream. Um, Scout writes, I'm interested in your essays because of a recent event in my life. I'm a nine-year bilateral lung transplant recipient. Last Friday, I stood at the bedside of a dear friend who was in desperate need of a heart and kidney transplant. She was dying and had accepted that reality. As we stared into each other's tear-filled eyes, knowing it was our last goodbye, she died three days later. Why did I survive and she would not? How does one answer that question? Yeah. I, I mean, th I feel like it's, you know, as I, it's just really powerful to hear stories about, like that because you realize that, you know, 
if if we're I don't know if we would call it lucky or unlucky, but we all have moments like that in our lives where we sort of, you know, our, our life is sort of elevated into something beyond, you know, the everyday, you know, where everything is heightened and, and deeper in some way. And uh, I think, you know, even just hearing a story like that, we can, we sort of get the same feeling vicariously. And I feel like that's, that's just why I'm so grateful I get to do this work is that it's, it, it gives me a chance to, you know, I kind of get extra practice at those moments just vicariously mm. from being around them as they're happening to other people. But yeah, thank you for the, for the comment. Here's another answer to that question in its own oblique way. Chris writes, in the 90s, my older kids and I were at Santa Cruz in the water. South of us, a wave of frenetic birds and dogs rolled towards us. In the water, hundreds of silver fish caressed our bodies, followed by darting cormorants. At that moment, I understood that I was some small part of this incredible natural world. Another answer to that question, in a, in a sense, a question of existence, that is to say, John Muell, is in this story about Felicity, this town created by a skydiving Frenchman. Can you set us up quickly for, like, what, what is this place, Felicity? Yeah, Felicity is a town um, in, in between, um, well, it's, it's right on the California-Arizona border, down south, out, you know, east of San Diego. And um, Jacques Estelle, who uh, was, it was his 85th birthday on the day I arrived, uh, which was eight years ago. I'm still around in his, in his early 90s, as far as I know. Um, he decided uh, to use his um, sort of independent fortune to, uh, after a long and varied career, which involved uh, invent, uh, bringing uh, skydiving to America, among other things, decided that he was going to build his own town in the middle of the desert just for him and his wife. Uh, complete with uh, a, a chapel modeled after a chapel in France, uh, a hilltop chapel for which he also built the hill. He brought in earth movers to build the hill first. Uh, and he was going to live there. Population 2, Felicity, California, named after his wife. And then he decided that he it was also the center of the world. He was going to call it the center of the world, and no one could dispute him. Um, and he managed to get official proclamations about it. He has many ceremonies. He's very into pomp and circumstance about being at the center of the world. And then he decided he was going to build a museum for of the history of humanity, carved in granite that would last millennia, documenting what life is like on Earth for human beings. Um, so very uh, modest ambitions. Uh, <laughs> And uh, yeah, I was I was really fascinated by the whole thing, and and uh, went down to Felicity and spent a few days there, uh, getting to know Jacques, or at least trying to get to know Jacques. In the end, I think he was very frustrated by all my questions about his motivations and how he conceived of his projects. Um, and at one point, snapped at me and said, "You know, I'm a very simple person. Don't make me complicated. If I weren't, if I were more complicated, I wouldn't be doing all of this." Or more <laughs> Which, introspective. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Which I think, yeah. with, for me, as someone who's uh, maybe uh, introspective to a fault or overthinks things, uh, I, I still have that knocking around in my brain sometimes, and realize, like, yes, there is a there is a certain type of person that moves through the world doing instead of thinking about what they're doing. But you know, I I actually see a connection between you two because you know, you, when you're describing all of his granite tablets these pieces of human history that he's decided to carve into granite. The, the selection of things that he's taken, as, as would anybody's, if you're trying to tell the whole history of humanity, carve it into granite tablets, you're going to make, a ha- you're going to take a haphazard path through, uh, you know, human history. And I kind of feel like his granite tablets, his history of humanity, they're not unlike your stories. Don't you think? Like I mean, idiot. I take that as a compliment. I think I see where you're going. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I do appreciate that. I think, I think that what it reflects is, you know, he has to kind of have an outsider view of the world. He kind of, because he's, he doesn't know who he's deciphering existence for, you know, millennia later. 
and what they will think about it. He has to he has to kind of and I think this is his talent sort of as a as a writer, I guess, as a writer in granite, is that he he can look at things um I'm actually looking for the the quote in the, you know, he can look at things that seem to us mundane or 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 that would defy any pithy explanation and he can boil it down. You know, at some point he says, you know, our moon is is distant and romantic and influences uh you know uh, the lives of humans or something like that. I can't remember the exact quote, but um, but yeah, I think that in that in that sense, maybe maybe I'm seeing that you're right. Like I I think that the job of of that I feel you know that or the thing I feel I can do well when I'm thrown into some of these situations is um is kind of take a, a an outsider view of them and try to see them with some um you know see their profundity and also their absurdity and and just also kind of try to be delighted by them in, in a way which i think is um it's very hard to do in in real life but when you're sent somewhere with a a pen and a notebook and asked to to talk about what you saw um it sort of encourages you into that into that very jacques mode of of appreciating things yeah um, i also have to tell you you have some comments coming in from listeners some compliments um one, Tamara tweets, totally grateful for the forum show this morning. John Mulam, The World and His Book, Serious Face. Better, though, a listener writes, I'm sure I'm not alone, but I find Manolete very striking looking. I've always thought a strong nose was appealing. Well, this was all just a ploy to get to people to indirectly tell me I'm <laughs> handsome. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I you know, I guess I maybe I should have made this clear in the in the story too, but um, you know, I don't think he's particularly ugly either. I like the way we look, um, and uh, and like I said, I think that was why uh, I was I was just really amused by the whole thing was that it was not I was not going to let it drag me down, um, and I you know I saw someone online too, you know, this piece was adapted for a, a story in the Times Magazine a couple of weeks ago, and I saw someone online saying. Um, you know, like, what does ugly even mean anymore? Like, there's, you know, so many tastes out there that it, someone's going to find everyone attractive, which I think is, we, we're sort of transcended ugly. So I, I appreciate that. <laughs> John Moalem, this is a beautiful, beautiful book. And it's just such a wonderful celebration of your range and your writing. Thank you so much for joining us. The new book is Serious Face. The writer is John Moalem. Thanks, John. Thank you so much, Alexis. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This has been so much fun. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone? hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years. Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snapchat Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.